From our studio in San Francisco's The Civic Kitchen, this is Salt and Spine. Making cookbooks is like my reason for living. And I take it extremely, extremely personally and extremely seriously. And the process is so painstakingly thought out and intentional and careful and special to me. Hi there, I'm Brian Hogan-Stewart, and you're listening to Salt and Spine, stories behind cookbooks. And she's back, Allison Roman. This week's guest returns for an all-new conversation on today's show. Of course, you know Allison Roman. She's, as The New Yorker's Michelle Moses wrote recently, no ordinary food writer. She's more like a phenomenon. Of course, she's the author of Dining In, her first cookbook that became an overnight hit among home cooks. She writes a column for the New York Times food section and contributes to Bon Appetit magazine. And now she's back with her latest book, which debuted on the New York Times bestseller list list, and it's called Nothing Fancy, Unfussy Food for Having People Over. And odds are you're already seeing the recipes popping up on your social media feeds. Building on our conversation with Allison from last year, in today's show, we're talking about how she approaches cooking for others, about writing recipes that tend to go viral, and of course, about anchovies, about DIY martini bars, and about cookbooks. Plus, it's not salt and spine without a game, so stick around. Also, in today's show, New York Times contributor and salt and spine friend Priya Krishna joins us to talk about the economics of cookbook writing. Salt and Spine kitchen correspondent Sarah Varney heads into the kitchen armed with Allison Roman's Nothing Fancy. Great Jones's Sierra Tishgart shares a vintage work from their cookbook collection. And of course, we feature recipes from Nothing Fancy for you to recreate at home. Wow, all of that this week on Salt and Spine. So let's head now to our studio inside the Civic Kitchen Cooking School in San Francisco, where Allison Roman joined us to talk cookbooks. Hi, Allison. How are you? I'm so good. How are you? Great. Welcome back to Salt and Spine. Thank you for having me. We're so glad to have you back for our, our episode we're calling Allison Roman 2.0. I know. I, feel, I truly feel like it was not that long ago that I was here, but... It's been like a year. It flew by. Yeah. It's crazy. And we're here to talk about your new cookbook. Yes. Nothing fancy. Mm-hmm. So let's jump right into that. Cool. And you have talked a lot about how you're opposed to the term entertaining. Mm-hmm. And you actually say that you've always been allergic to the word entertaining. Yeah. And here you are today to talk to us about an entertaining <laughs> book. So can you talk about like how you approach entertaining, even though we don't want to use that word and yeah. what it is about that word that bothers you so much? Well, it's just a formal word. It's like, mm-hmm. try using it in a sentence, right? Like <laughs> right. you can't really, you're not like, what are you doing this weekend? You're like, oh, I'm entertaining. Like that feels so weird and formal sure. and stuffy. And I think that I'm really, what I'm allergic to is formality and stuffiness. That That's that fair. word embodying those two things makes me allergic to it. That's fair. But I heard or I read that you um, grew up, your mom was hosting dinner parties quite often. Like she yes. would have people over like almost every weekend. Mm-hmm. And she was always cooking. So you were sort of around entertaining a lot. I was. Yeah. And I would say actually, like, I feel like my mom would have maybe called it entertaining because uh-huh. she there was like a sort of ritual aspect to it. And she was a bit more, I don't want to say fussy, but she was a bit more... uh intentioned sure. when she hosted. And I feel like when I do it, I'm just kind of like, eh, come over and we'll have some food and snacks maybe. And I don't know how much food, but there'll be wine and we'll hang out. And it's kind of like a very casual situation where with her, we definitely had a dining room and we sat there and we like, we did the whole thing and there were plates and right. You know, yeah, <laughs> plates. I mean, I, I use plates <laughs> yeah. too for the record, but you know, like I mean, you could, don't have to. No, but. well, you know, like the table was set, you know, and that's sure. not really something that I do. Sure. Yeah. I mean, you use the term unfussy a lot to mm-hmm. talk about how you approach having people over unfussy food, unfussy vibes, like the permission to be imperfect. Mm-hmm. You think that's a really big thing for people these days? Feeling I do. That pressure? Yeah. I feel like, you know, all we see, we're like constantly inundated with images of how we should be living and how we should be cooking and how our apartment should be and right. what we should be wearing and like these very curated images that cost a lot of money to produce. Yeah. And we are somehow like holding that up against our reality and being like, well, what am I doing wrong? Because that looks cool and effortless and effortless and chic and casual and whatever. But the reality is, is that's not real. It's produced and it's manufactured. And so I think if just a a gentle nudge and a reminder to be like, that's actually not real. And anything that it is that you're doing is great. And you should keep going and appreciate that and lean into that for sure. 
And there is there a higher pressure for disappointment? Like if you're, I mean, you're talking about things that cost a lot of money to produce a beautiful, elaborate meal. If it doesn't turn out, it feels a little more crushing, right? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think anytime you like spend money on something and it doesn't meet your expectations, that's yeah. a bit of a bummer. Yeah. But I think that's just the nature of cookbook writing and recipe writing. And I think that that is, you know, part of your responsibility if that's what you're going to do for a living that you need to make sure that your recipes work, that they taste good, that they look like the photo, that they, you know, are an authentic representation of what you're trying to convey in the book. Because if somebody does it and they make it and it doesn't look like it, right. they're going to be really bummed out. There's a recipe in Nothing, nothing Fancy for a dip. And yes. in my photo, the, the oil that it's like a sizzled chili and scallion oil. Uh-huh. And in the photo, the oil is very red. And some people have oil that is not so red. And I've, I've gotten a lot of questions and they're like, what did I do wrong? I kept cooking it. It's not orange. And I was like, well, how old are your chili flakes? Right. They're like, I don't know, at least two years old. And I was like, they're old and they're not good. And you're not using like a high quality chili flake. I was like, does it taste good? And they're like, yeah, it's delicious. I'm like, well then don't worry about it. Right. So on the one hand, you want to be like, yeah, seek out high ingredients, make sure your spices aren't two years old, you know, blah, blah, blah. But also I'm like, well, does it taste good? And they're like, yeah. I'm like, yeah. well, focus on that. If, right. it, if it tasted weird, if it was off, it was like not spicy or this, that, and the other, I would say, okay, let's talk. But different ingredients are going to produce different results based on how you're, you know, the freshness, where they're from, the quality of them, whatever. You know, I think that most of the recipes that I make are designed to work with like grocery store variety and like really high-end variety. It's just right. visually, they might be a bit different. Do you think about that? The visual aspect? Like, have you ever... All the time. Have you ever thought I should do a cookbook with no photos instead? Like, just... I would never. At that level, you would never. I would never. But but do you think about that aspect when you're thinking about how your photos come out? Yeah, but I think that it's, it's much... It's as much fantasy, like a fun thing to look at when you're sitting on your couch and you're just kind of like thinking about food and getting inspired, generally speaking. But it's also a resource. When you're cooking, you want to know what something's supposed to look like. Sure. To give yeah. you like an idea of where you're going. Yeah. So you had just finished writing Dining In, start to maybe transition to working on Nothing Fancy. Mm-hmm. Did you know right away it would be a book about having people over? Um, or how did that sort of process look to you? Yeah, I mean, I think it's really the book that I that was like in me for dining in, but I couldn't phrase it that way. Cause I felt like for my first book, I really wanted just like a, a clean blanket statement. Here's who I am. Okay. This is what I like. Here's the flavors that here are the flavors that I enjoy. Here's who I am. Here's where I came from. And when I think about how I actually cook as like a single person living alone, who spends most of their time cooking for friends yeah, and having people over, like that's actually the life that I'm living. That right. is my reality. I think that, you know, when looking at, okay, well, what, what kind of cookbooks sell? Like, what should I do? And looking at those kind of demographics and like statistics isn't really helpful for me because if I were to write a cookbook on like easy weeknight cooking, that's not very honest for me who I am as a cook. That's like a very good task for me to tackle for like the New York Times. Right. Because that's an assignment and I'm, they're paying me to do a job and like that's my column for them. Sure. Yeah. But if I'm like, this is me, this is my book doing things like, you know, sheet pan dinners for four, like that's not actually how I'm cooking. Yeah. Because I'm really more cooking for like four to eight people and it's like snacks and salads and sides and sort of, you know, lots of different things. And so when my editor was like, well, what do you want the second book to be? I was like, I, I really want to do it about how to have people over. And they were like, well, entertaining books don't sell. And I think that that's true. They don't. And yeah. I was like, well, let's call it something else. Cause I don't call it entertaining. Right. And so it's paying off. I feel like yeah. they were, they were happy <laughs> they took the chance, but it Did was, you say that early on? Yeah. Like, I don't call it entertaining. Yeah. That didn't come about later in the process of making no, the book. No, because I, I think it was been. in the argument of me trying to pitch this book. And yeah. I think that it was, I remember I was sitting at Via Carota in New York and having lunch with my editor, Doris. Uh-huh. And I was like, very fired up about this. I was like, people don't entertain. They have people over. If we took that word away, I I guarantee you people are going to respond to it. Just yeah. like on that fact alone. Because the reality is, is the food isn't that different than dining in. It's kind of an, an evolution of it. And each dish is thoughtful in, you know, me making sure that it does feel like, would I really make this for six people? Is this really attainable for eight people? Like, can sure. this really be served room temperature? Am I really fussing over this? And so I really, I, I examined each recipe to make sure that it truly belonged in this collection. Yeah. And this is your second book. And I believe you, you had a four book contract. Is that right? It's a two book contract. And then I signed another two book, another contract. two book contract. Yeah. So are you thinking about a trajectory here? Like it, 
do you have a vision in mind for how your books are sort of building on each other? Because you I, say it's an extension of I Dining do, Room. I do. And maybe you can't tell us everything, but <laughs> that is something that you think about in terms of your process. Oh, yeah. I always, I'm, that's all I think about. <laughs> I think about, about it yeah. all the time. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I'm... I'm uh, yeah, yeah, I think about it all the time. But this book, you would say, is more of a natural sort of extension of how you just cook on a day-to-day For basis sure. than dining in. Yeah, and the reality is is that I don't cook on a day-to-day basis. Sure. And so I think a lot of people are like, well, what if I don't cook all the time? Or what if I don't want to have people over? You can still use this book. Yeah. I feel like the recipes in it are easily scaled down. They're easily scaled up. They're, they're good recipes. Right. They work regardless. It's not like, here's how to make stuffed mushrooms for 40 people. It's right. not like the Martha Stewart sort of entertaining vibe. It's more of like a, oh, I have three friends coming over on Thursday to watch whatever. What should I make? Sure. I think there's only one thing on a toothpick recipe in the book. Yeah. And so I even call out how call unlike out. me that is, yeah, but it right. is cute. Yeah. And, and you, you should have do to. it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah Cause we're talking anchovies yeah. and olives. Yeah, you kind of have to. I yeah. Know. So how did you approach this book differently than dining in sort of your second solo cookbook? What mm-hmm. lessons or things did you learn about how you work as a cookbook author that mm. influenced the creation of this one? I didn't learn any of the good things, okay. like how to be more organized that uh-huh. I did not learn or how to be on time or set myself up for success. <laughs> I did not learn any of those. But what I did learn was that I think with dining in, I was so stressed about people liking me. I was really freaked out. Like, is everyone going to like me? Like, cause it was my first book away from Bon Appetit and right. sort of my first solo situation. And I was really nervous that without the support or hiding behind a brand, that I wasn't going to be met with positivity. And so I feel like maybe I was less sure of myself in the first one. And I feel like you can kind of read it in my voice, maybe. Um, And it was obviously a huge success. Did you have those feelings this time at all? Well, no. And here's why. It's not because everybody loved me. It's because not everybody (laughs) did. And I accepted that. I was like, oh, not everybody. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Not not even critics, just people that are like, I don't like that, Allison Roman. (laughs) It's like, well, fine. And so immediately upon realizing not everyone's going to like me, letting that sink in, digesting it, processing it, let, living with it, sure. I was finally able to be like, well, I'm just going to be more myself then because I have nothing to lose. And so people were, you know, ask me, I love dining in. Like, do you think you, I would like nothing fancy? And the answer is yes, absolutely. Right. If you didn't like dining in, you're probably not going to like nothing fancy. Right. Somebody and tweeted you might not at like me. like the next one. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Somebody tweeted at me like, um, I love your videos, but I bought dining in and meh, too many vegetables. <laughs> and I was like, okay, like, you know, right. okay, well, right. then you're going to hate nothing fancy. It is loaded with vegetables. Right. So I think that that is also the challenge of having your hand in different areas of like having the books and the columns and the whatever, because there is a different part of yourself represented in each of those avenues. Sure. And my voice for the times is different than my voice for the books and my, recipes that I am making for those videos can be different than what's in a book. And yeah. And I think that just like letting go of, you're not going to be everything to everybody. You're not going to be able to please everybody really help me relax and just be like, well, I'm going all in on myself because that's all you have. Yeah. That you make that sound really easy. Was that, was that easy or was it hard at times to no, deal it's been with? A, it's been a hard two years yeah. for sure. It's been like a lot of like second guessing myself and, but I will say that writing both books ha- came very easily. Like things really poured out. Nothing fancy, okay. much easier. Okay. Because I had already laid the groundwork for dining in. For dining in, I was like, I'm supposed to just like tell you everything I've ever learned. <laughs> right. I'm supposed to just like, here I am. Yeah. Here, here's everything I like and everything I've learned. And here's where I came from. And it seemed like a, a, a large task. And I'm not sure I'd even accomplished that. But with nothing fancy, I was able to kind of rely on the fact that if you came to nothing fancy, chances are you either read my column or read not- or read dining in. Sure, like it was less of a gamble. There's, I'm sure, plenty of people that have not read either and may stumble upon this book. And right. who knows what they'll think of me? But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, TBD. Yeah, you talked to Marketplace recently about the process of cookbook writing being a lonely and isolating process. Mm. Did you feel that even with this second book of yours as you're more established and you, you talk about sort of the various roles that you have for the New York Times and elsewhere? Yeah, probably more so. More so. Yeah. Cause I was single this time. Okay. I was in a relationship when I wrote Dining In. Uh huh. And even though the writing of it is 
lonely and and you know as a freelancer i work out of the apartment or out of an office space but you're sure. not really talking to people especially when you're writing i had the like there was like a per this sounds sad it's not sad <laughs> okay <laughs> but there was like you know the person to you know, come home from work and like talk about stuff and there was at least there was like somebody in it with me and i think this time there wasn't but i also think the writing was stronger because of it because yeah. i had to kind of like dig a little bit deeper and i was able to take these really long trips um upstate new york and new mexico and all these places to kind of just get away to and write? be yeah and be by myself which wow. i loved like buy groceries for 6 days like right. hole up in a house somewhere and just write and cook and hang out by myself and it was really special and like a really welcome time but yeah it it can be lonely in the sense that like you are writing all this stuff and you're like is this good yeah i have no idea should I include this essay? Should it be longer? Should it be shorter? Do you want more information? Do you want less information? Are these recipes good? Do you want less chicken? You know, yeah. like, I don't know. Sure. It, it, there's just a lot of self-doubt. But I think that I've always been really good at listening to my intuition. And even when other people don't like something, if I can stand by it, then I'm happy. And you have editors who you're working with. And yeah. you have you know, friends great. and people. But it's still ultimately your book and your project. And the weight of those sort of decisions totally. still is something that lies with you. Yeah. And the process is a lot less lonely when you're in the editing process. Because <laughs> okay, you're yeah, in right. constant communication with your editor. Sure. But yeah, I'm, I'm, yeah, I mean, when I say lonely, I'm, I don't mean necessarily even in the physical sense. I just mean in the like, it's you. Right. And you're like... It's not a collaborative effort. No. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it yeah. I mean, in some ways yeah. the photo shoots are sort of the opposite because that's the most collaborative. Like right. we're on set, like there's ideas, we're talking. It's like we're constantly together. Right. There's like six people in a house. We're hanging out and we're working all day and night and having the best time. Uh-huh. And it's the most collaborative and the most fun you could possibly have. And then the writing part is just like you in a house in the woods. <laughs> right. <laughs> so it's like, but it's nice to have two ends of this, of that spectrum. Yeah. Yeah. You have to adapt to both. So you decide the second book is going to be about having people over and right at the beginning of the book you sort of offer three helpful tips or, or suggestions for people when when you're having people over mm. the first one is asking for help it's not a weakness it's a strength you say <laughs> um, is that something that's been hard for you to do over the course of your life it's really hard for me when i have people over to give control of any of the food it's hard anybody. for me in literally every facet of my life. That okay, is like, yeah. all three of those lessons are things that you should apply to. <laughs> yes. I think it was just me like projecting what I aspire to be better at and in, asking in for help. Aspects, yeah. Aspects yeah. Of life, yeah. Like you don't have to do everything alone. And yeah. I think that there's a pressure. People say like, oh, should all the food be ready when people come over? It's like, no, you should, you can be cooking. You can be hanging. Give something, give somebody to something to do. Yeah. You know, set them like, okay, you make the snack plate. I'm going to be finishing up the chicken or like you pick the rest of the herbs. I'm going to slice the meat, whatever. Like, I think that as soon as you invite people in to collaborate with you, it feels like a lot lower of a lift for you, but it also makes them feel like collaborators, not just guests. Sometimes I have a fear, though, that even giving something as simple as like the herbs over to someone is just going to throw everything off. It won't. And even if it does a little bit, nobody cares or will notice. But you know what they will notice? You being stressed out. Yeah, that's true. It's like how animals smell fear. Right. We humans smell stress. And like you get stressed out, you start to sweat, like people are going to feel uncomfortable and weird and they're going to be like, ah, I got to go. Yeah. Uh-huh. So the third helpful tip that you offer, we're skipping the second one. Let's just call it out, even though we don't have to talk about it unless we want to, but pick your battles. Decide. Again, another decide great life important. lesson. <laughs> uh-huh. Life lesson, having people over lesson. And then the third, which I really liked is never apologize. Mm. And I like it because, of course, many of us idolize Julia Child. Yes, and that's that, a direct, that's a direct reference, yes. right? To her. Mm-hmm. And that's something, is that something that you have like worked on over your time as a person who cooks for other people? Yeah. And just as a woman. Yeah. <laughs> right. My best friend, um, made a note like if she tweeted something the other day and it was like i digress but this woman has <laughs> was wearing sunglasses and a man came up to her and was like oh i didn't recognize you because you had your sunglasses on and the woman's like oh i'm so sorry and my friend was like what are you apologizing for right you were wearing sun what why right. do we always apologize now and you can is, never wear sunglasses yeah again. i know it's it's it is like a culture of <laughs> yeah. we are apolog- an apologetic culture mm-hmm. we don't even mean it when we say it right like, oh i'm so sorry are we sorry Let's make, let's meet it when we say it. Yeah. But I think that with regards to cooking in the kitchen specifically, I feel like your people, your friends, your family, whatever, they won't notice the thing that you didn't do that you're apologizing for. Sure. Or that you did do. Like, oh, these carrots were supposed to have oranges, but I could only find lemons. I'm so sorry. Right. Why are you sorry? Right. It's going to be great. Right. Or I was going to make a fourth side dish, but I just ran out of time. I'm so sorry. Don't apologize. Yeah. The chicken skin is darker than it should be. I think it's over. 
Well, say that you like, I mean, don't even acknowledge it. Be like, this chicken skin is crispy and delicious. Sure. You know, I think that you have to just kind of roll with it because apologizing and drawing attention to the negativity is not going to do anybody any favors. Yeah. So just like lean into it, pour the wine, dim the lights, light a candle (laughs) and have a good time. (laughs) Well, I mean, that's the other thing Julia Child always said, right? Is who's to know? Who's to know if the chicken skin is darker than you wanted it to be or that you left four things out of the recipe? If if you're not tasting it, who's to know? I I mean, I found myself still doing it. Like cooking mm-hmm. professionally for like 15 years and I'm still like, Oh, is this, is it a little salty? It's like, <laughs> right. just squeeze some extra lemon on there. Give them some water. Hope yeah. for the best. <laughs> yeah. So you dedicated this book to your grandma. Is it Prue? Your grandma Prue? Grandma Prue. Is she living? She is. She's yeah. living. Okay. And what sort of lessons did you learn from her? You, you write in the book that she taught you everything you know about the importance of elaborate crudite, mm-hmm. about white wine on ice, mm-hmm. and about a great orange red nail. Yes. And you, you offer a little story too about preparing vegetables with her and that yeah. she would sort of spend a lot of time making these raw vegetables. And then the dip is, of course, just like a jar of Hidden Valley Ranch, yeah. which really resonated <laughs> with how all of my family entertains. Which was like, honestly, great. Yeah. Would eat. Um, yeah, she would carve like little animals out of crookneck squash and yeah. carve flowers out of radishes. It's like a real skill. I mean, I don't have the patience. Yeah. She couldn't cook for hell and like still can't, <laughs> but she would really go out for the crudite. And it wasn't about the quality of the vegetable. It was just how it looked. Sure. <laughs> but I, there was something about like her. She, she's a very glamorous woman, less so these days, but she's still, she still got it. Yeah. She still got it a bit, but, um. And why did you, why did you dedicate this book to her? Did you, was she particularly influential for you when it turned, when it comes to like having people over? Or? Um, yes, but uh, yes, for sure. Uh-huh. Also, <laughs> this is dark. She, she was, <laughs> I'm not, I don't mean to laugh. She was supposed to pass away. Okay. Like when I was, Writing the acknowledge, and I was like, I got it dedicated to grandma, like, yeah, pouring off for grandma Prue. Sure. And she's still alive. Well, she's just kept living, which yeah. bless, like, absolutely. Is, that's great. Yeah, uh-huh. Um, sure. but it was, it was not looking good for a minute. I and see. we were all, we all said goodbye, but then we said hello again. Yeah. Well, I'm glad to hear that. But she also, yeah, I mean, she was, she's definitely like a glamorous woman who, you know, lived in an era where like serving, she was the person in my life who did like, the sorbet and grapefruit cups and uh-huh. put the oranges on top or the grapes on top in a concentric circle and right. would like arrange things in it just so. And again, nothing really tasted good. Like she would make me mac and cheese from a box right. and like overcook the brisket and under season it and also somehow undercook it. It was not good. But I think that the thought that was there, like that she invited, she loved to have people over. So it was the act of feeding you. Exactly. It was not the, the act, quality. Exactly. Yeah. It was like, you know what? And we still came over time yeah. after time. Right. You know. Yeah. yeah you weren't looking so. for the quality either. No, you it was, it was about that. like being together and hanging out. We'll be right back with the second half of our conversation with Allison Roman, author of Nothing Fancy, Unfussy Food for Having People Over. But first, New York Times contributor and Indian-ish author Priya Krishna is back, and this time it's to talk money. Priya recently penned a New York Times piece titled, Would You Write a Cookbook for Next to Nothing?, And she joins us today to talk about the economics of cookbook writing and some of the challenges that up-and-coming authors face. Now, earlier this year, Baltimore-based cookbook author Alison Robicelli set off a, quote, Twitter storm when she shared that a publisher had asked her to write a guide to top Washington, D.C. restaurants, but with no dining budget and no guarantee of any significant compensation down the line. Her tweet took off with thousands of responses, including from authors with similar stories. But the virality of the tweet wasn't what shocked Allison. As she tells Priya for the piece, what is surprising is that we haven't been speaking out about this before. Nobody wants to talk about how hard it is to get by as a writer. Now, Priya had already been mulling the same topic. You know, I worked on the Lucky Peach cookbooks when I was working at Lucky Peach. And then obviously I wrote, I've written two cookbooks myself. I've thought a lot about the lack of transparency in the industry and how perhaps a lot of these deals are set up sort of so that the incentives between the publisher and the writer are not aligned. And then seeing the response to Allison's tweet and sort of having talked to a bunch of cookbook authors even before that about their deals, it just felt like the right moment to start looking into this. And sure enough, like as soon as I started doing the reporting, you know, people were coming out of the woodwork talking about how they'd been, you know, offered these insane deals or how they'd taken these insane deals for the exposure. And, you know, it's sort of become increasingly 
the norm among certain publishers. For many authors, a book advance is expected to cover other pieces of production, from the photography to the recipe testing to the cost of ingredients themselves. I think in general, Cocoa Publishing, even with the larger publishers, it can be really tough to just financially justify when you're expected to take all of your expenses out of your advance. If you really think about it, the fact that all those expenses are expected to come out of the author's budget means that it's up to the author to basically be like the chief financial officer of their own book. And obviously, as an author, you you know you want to make the best book, but you also want to pocket the most money. So those are kind of competing goals because a lot of the time making the best book means hiring a recipe developer, hiring an expensive photographer, you know, paying to test things multiple times, which means your grocery bill might be a little bit higher. So it's like the more resources you spend on the book to make it a really great book, the less money you're earning out. And that has never really made sense to me. It's a topic of conversation that Priya says comes up often for cookbook authors. She's asked about her latest book, Indianish. Like, how much money are you making on each cookbook? And I'm like, well, it's complicated because I have to earn out my advance first. And then this is how my royalties are structured. And it's a, it's a lot more complicated. And I think the general public doesn't really realize that. But it's also a topic of conversation that often isn't given much thought beyond the relatively small world of publishing, Priya says. There is this like sense, I think, because cookbooks are doing so well, you know, it's like one of the few forms of print media that people still really value. People love to collect cookbooks. And I think there's this prestige that comes with being an author. So, you know, to the outside world, it's like cookbooks must be like, these are really fancy, beautifully designed objects. Like you must have gotten a lot of money to make this, not realizing that actually they kind of just like spent a lot of their own money and oftentimes, you know, even went in the red to get this cookbook done. But could the tides be turning, I asked Priya? More authors seem to be willing to discuss the once taboo subject of compensation and to explore solutions like self-publishing. I don't really know why it's been so taboo. I mean, I think just generally talking about numbers and money is really difficult. But I think, you know, Allison puts it well in that, like, no one wants to know how little they were paying for a book. I bet we will see more self-publishing. But at the same time, like, in order to front all of those costs requires you having a lot of resources to begin with. Self-publishing isn't a perfect solution either. To be honest, like it, from talking to these publishing companies, the ones offering these meager deals, it doesn't seem like there's a shortage of authors willing to accept these offers. So I don't think we're going to see a decline in authors accepting shitty offers because I think being published is always going to carry with it this prestige. And people who are trying to break into this industry will be really tempted by this. I mean, I'm hoping that this article is at least like a step forward in terms of transparency, because I think that's something this industry has lacked a lot of. That's Priya Krishna, author of Indianish and a New York Times contributor. Her recent article, Would You Write a Cookbook for Next to Nothing, is linked in our show notes. If I had money, Every Tuesday on Salt and Spine, we love sitting down with another of your and my favorite cookbook authors to tell the stories behind cookbooks. From Jacques Pepin and Nigella Lawson to Samin Nostrat and Allison Roman, Salt and Spine is the leading podcast featuring in-person interviews with your favorite authors. Plus, we publish delicious and exclusive recipes, hold cookbook giveaways for listeners like you, host incredible live shows, and so much more. Salt and Spine truly brings cookbooks to life, and we can only do it thanks to listeners like you. You can join the Salt and Spine community today to support our effort to bring you top-notch interviews and the best cookbook content starting at just $2 a month. Find out more and join the Salt and Spine community at patreon.com backslash salt and spine. And we're headed now into the kitchen with Salt and Spine kitchen correspondent Sarah Varney, who teamed up with her son Fountain and neighbor Deb to prepare a couple of recipes from Allison Roman's Nothing Fancy. Here's Sarah in San Francisco. It's tricky business, this cooking after Thanksgiving. My refrigerator is crammed with turkey, stuffing, butternut squash, and perhaps a gallon of cranberry sauce. But my family can't stomach any more leftovers. 
Thankfully, I've got Allison Roman to help me out. What magic can she conjure up from my depleted pantry and the orphaned ingredients in my fridge? Well, with the green beans and lemons in my crisper, I'll make them mustardy beans with anchovied walnuts. And because it's been raining for days here in San Francisco and it's cold in my apartment, I'll warm up with the scallops with spicy beans, tomatillo, and citrus. But first, I have to walk a few blocks in a downpour to my neighborhood green grocer to pick up a few ingredients. One of the things Allison Roman really likes is canned fish. So she's big into buying cans of anchovies and sardines and mackerel and uh, jumbo squid, kind of anything and everything you get your hands on and just kind of keep them in the pantry, which is not something that I typically do. Hi, how are you? Good, how you Good. Did you have Thanksgiving? Yeah, I did. What did you make? Uh, so we make some uh, ribeyes. Ribeyes? Yeah, yeah. Because turkey is like, it's not like familiar for us. So So you're not eating a lot of leftovers right now? No. No? No. <laughs> Unlike the rest of us? No. Yeah. All right, cool. Well, thank you. Yeah, so just this. And I've got a bag. Back at home, my upstairs oh, neighbor, Deb, comes Come down to test out the recipes. How are you? You arrived with your own wine. I did. I just thought <laughs> I actually uh, have some. I'll be more charming this way. <laughs> so what's on the menu tonight? We're going to make this mustardy green beans with anchovied walnuts. And then we're going to make a scallop dish, which sounded really, really good. And I went and bought some scallops. Ooh. Do you like scallops? Yes. Okay, good. They were really expensive. They are. It's $35 oh for a pound of scallops. Oh, that is really expensive. Yes, yeah, scallops with spicy beans, tomatillo, and citrus. So let's start with the green beans. I've preheated the oven to 450. Pour. This is my sun fountain. Say hi. Hello. Hello. Um, can you pour a quarter cup of olive oil in there? These are the walnuts that are in the olive oil. We stir the walnuts over medium heat for a few minutes and then add garlic and a generous pile of anchovies, which are supposed to dissolve in the heat. This is what an anchovy looks like? Yeah. See? And then we put them in, and then they just dissolved in the heat? they were right. Nice. All right, so now what? Place the green beans and lemon on a rimmed baking dish and drizzle with enough olive oil to lightly coat and season with salt and pepper. Okay. While the green beans and lemon slices bake in the oven, Deb and I start the mustard sauce, which requires that I dig out some white wine vinegar. I have 14 million jars of stuff in the fridge. Red wine vinegar. Sherry vinegar. No. Well, how about champagne vinegar? We can use that. Yeah. Fancy, fancy. We mix the champagne vinegar with some mustard and olive oil and set it aside until the green beans are ready. Then we turn to the scallops with tomatillos and citrus. I didn't know what a ripe tomatillo looked like, so I bought a few extra, and Deb shows me how to husk them. So you just pull the husks off. We husk and slice the tomatillos and then the tangerines. Oh, yeah. And I set my 12-year-old son, Fountain, to juice some limes. Um, Here you go, sweetheart. Here, just cut those in half. Them? Yep, and then squeeze them on there. Just to recap. <laughs> Sorry, where are we? So, tomatillos, tangerines, chili, shallot, lime juice, and four tablespoons of olive oil. Okay, and then we mix that up and set it aside. Oh, now we have to season the scallops. I was always kind of scared of scallops. I feel like there's been a lot of really bad um, nights retching after scallops. <laughs> like, you get a bad scallop... She says as she undoes the scallops. Well, these are beautiful. Wow. Yeah, big sea scallops. It says to do the scallops in canola oil. Can we consult? I made bacon earlier this morning. Ow. Ooh. Oops, that's hot. I made bacon earlier this morning, and I have some bacon grease left over uh-huh. in that nice iron skillet, and I thought that might be a nice way to do the scallops. We decide everything tastes better in bacon grease and gently place the sea scallops in the hot pan. While the scallops cook just a few minutes on each side, we mix together the roasted green beans and lemons with the anchovied walnuts and mustard sauce and sprinkle some fresh dill on top. That's amazing looking. Wow. 
We set the scallops aside, add some more oil to the pan, and sprinkle in Aleppo pepper and the cannellini beans. These have soaked up all the scallopy business and are looking impossibly tasty. About four minutes or so. Okay, and then we transfer the tomatillos and the citrus to a large serving platter and top with the beans. I think it was a stroke of genius to use the leftover bacon grease from this morning. Thank you. Because I defy anybody who loves bacon to not love this. That's off, and then we put a little cilantro on top. Goes. Sprinkle, sprinkle, sprinkle. Oh my god, that looks gorgeous. Oh, it's such yeah, a pretty I plate. I feel like after Thanksgiving where everything is kind of brown. Yes. To have just, just green and orange, citrusy smell. You know, scallops always kind of pick up the flavors that you cook them in. Oh, this is a keeper. Oh, nice. Okay, yeah. great. What do you think, Fountain? Um, I've never had scallops before. I'm kind of scared. Mm. <laughs> kind of scared. They're so good. You ought to make this again. I love that. Mm. I'm gonna make this again. That's the best thing ever. And it really didn't take that long. I know. We kind of just all pitched in, but we made it in about an hour, right? Mm. Wow. <laughs> here's to uh, Shay Sarah. Oh, here's mm. to great neighbors and a great son. Cheers, honey. Oh, thanks. I love you. Mm. That's Sarah Varney, her son Fountain, and neighbor Deb, cooking from Allison Roman's Nothing Fancy. Featured recipes are the scallops with spicy beans, tomatillo, and citrus, and the mustardy green beans with anchovied walnuts. And now back to our conversation with Allison Roman, author of Nothing Fancy, Unfussy Food for Having People Over. So you take a lot of DIY approaches in the book, or a couple DIY approaches. You have a DIY martini bar, for instance. You also have a recipe for a DIY baked potato bar. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel like those two items in particular sort of remind me of like a classic dinner party mm-hmm. decades ago, right? Yeah. Like you come over and there's a baked potato and somebody's shaking martinis. Yeah. But your approach is sort of to just like take all of the work out and make it a make collaborative you, make effort. Make you do it. Yeah. yeah. When I mean do it yourself, I mean do it yourself. <laughs> like not <laughs> right. me, but you. Right. Yeah. yeah. Not as the host, no, but as the as guest, the guest. that, that yeah. there's going to be work to do. Yeah. So those two recipes really stuck out to me because they felt like sort of emblems of dinner parties of yours. Is yeah. that something that you thought about when you were putting this book together? Yeah, I'm such a sucker for old school stuff. I love uh-huh. old school restaurants. I love like, I don't know, there's a lot of good stuff that came out of many years ago. A lot of stuff I'm glad that isn't around. Sure. Um, but <laughs> <laughs> yep. uh, mostly socially and politically. But right. um, but that food wise, I am down. Yeah. I am so down. You can for go the, back to the food stuff. Yeah, the other exactly. Stuff. Yeah. Let's move forward in every other way <laughs> except for martinis for every meal. Uh-huh. Um, and salad bars. Yeah. I think that, you know, and just kind of being like, oh, well, I don't want to shake an individual cocktail. It's like, well, me neither. Right. So pre-batch, dilute. My friend Robbie Nelson was preaching about this for years. And we finally started to listen to him. Adding water to your alcohol as a cocktail ingredient to pre-dilute, meaning you're negating the purpose or you're negating the need for for shaking or right. stirring. Right. So pouring that mixture over ice um, or even just chilling that mixture and drinking it straight up is an awesome way to make a cocktail. And then it holds, right? Like if mm-hmm. you make too much of the martini oh, mix, just you stick just in your freezer. pop it in the freezer. Yeah. yeah. And then you've got it for Monday night. When if you I had it. a reasonably sized freezer, sure. I would keep that in my freezer. Sure. So you said that this book is more of a natural extension of you and how you cook. And I think we see a lot of the things that people have come to associate with you in this book. In particular, one is anchovies and your continued love and obsession with anchovies. You even write that one of your defining character traits is loves anchovies and that hearkening back to our conversation a minute ago that that is a character trait for which you will not apologize (laughs) (laughs) are you on like a mission to really get people to love anchovies i think people have come a long way yeah people have come a long way i'm very proud of us. thanks in part maybe to you and other people who have been pushing anchovies but i I mean i used to have an aversion to them and i love them so did i well i mean i think i thought i didn't like them but also i still don't like bad anchovies a bad anchovy is gross sure it's still bad i'm not like any of them are great because they're not Yes. A lot of them are not so good, but you know, high quality anchovies, man, are so crazy delicious. And the amount yeah. of times on this book tour alone that I've given somebody an anchovy for like the first time 
or they say they don't like them. And I'm like, yeah, but these are really good anchovies and give them that for the first time. Right. And they're like, wow, you're right. Yeah. And I'm like, yeah, I told yeah. you so. So I, I just, you know, I think with any ingredient, we think we don't like olives, anchovies to name it, to name two that come to mind. Right. I think that you should absolutely give them a chance. I have a, one of my best friends in New York doesn't like olives. And I sure. forget this about him every, I spend a lot of time with this person. He and I share many meals together. I cook for him a lot. Uh-huh. His boyfriend cooks for me and him a lot. We go to dinner a lot. Never once have I remembered he doesn't like olives. But so the other day I had <laughs> cast of a Toronto olives and I was like, mm-hmm. Oh, but you should try these. And he's like, Allison. I don't like olives. Right. I don't like any of them. He's like, you've tried to tell me this a thousand times. Right. It's not going to work. So there's some, there's some times where I'm like, I respect your choice. Yeah. It's not like I don't believe you when you say you don't like them. I just don't believe you if you've never had really high quality yeah. versions of those ingredients. So you're not getting mad if people no. don't like anchovies and want to leave them out. Like I think, is it the lasagna recipe that has anchovies in it? They're as well? optional, but that yeah. are optional. Right. Yeah. And so you sort of call out the optionality of them, right? Like you're well, not going to judge someone if they really need to leave them out, honestly, but you want though, people to try. Yeah. If you make tomato sauce one time with anchovies, you, it's very hard to go back. Yeah. It's, it's very, very hard. I put them in every time you lose that saltiness, that umami. I don't sort know. Of. It's just like, it, there's something there. There's something, there's a lot there. Yeah. It's a lot there's of a lot something. There. So you also have, um, a lot of recipes for salad in the book. Mm-hmm. Well, maybe not a lot, but a good number of recipes. Yeah. And also sort of like some salad frameworks and some salad, um, you call them salad truths as well, universal salad truths. Mm. One of which is you say no more vinaigrettes. No more vinaigrettes. No more vinaigrettes. And by that, I mean, Why? I'm not going to like whisk a thing in a bowl. Yeah. And then pour that over other things in another bowl. And I, I prefer to dress my because salads. Because you just make it right in the bowl. In the bowl. Yeah. Okay. Season your greens. Uh huh. Like, you know, squeeze the lemon over. Sure. Drizzle the vinegar, the pickled shallot mixture, whatever, over your leaves or your vegetables or whatever. Season them with salt and pepper. Taste them. Are they acidic mm-hmm. enough? Are they salty enough? Do you need more pepper? Once they're where you want it to be, then just drizzle it with olive oil. You don't need to like make an emulsification to like dress a piece of romaine. My right. God. Is there like a part of your chefy background that just like cringes at that? No, because I never made them in a kitchen either. Okay. That spoiler yeah. alert, nobody's making vinaigrettes. <laughs> Guess what? That's like a weird home cook thing that somebody told you you should do. Right. But have you, I mean, and like eating a vinaigrette, it's like when a vinaigrette in a bowl is well seasoned enough to where you could eat it with a spoon, by the time you put it on your lettuce, it's still not right. And you're still adjusting with either more acid, salt or oil. So I'm like, why not just eliminate that step? And like... I know that I am alone and a lot of people love to make vinaigrettes and salad dressings and keep them in jars at home. And I don't want to poo-poo that because live your dreams. Do that for you. For me, that's just not, I'm just not interested. Yeah, that's fair. There's a number of recipes in um, this book that take, I think, like a more narrative style that are sort of more freeform, one of which is Mm -hmm. a salad that that you sort of just recommend, like a lot of herbs, some greens, as you said, a drizzle of some sort of vinegar or citrus and some oil. Another one is fruit on ice, Mm -hmm. um, which I think I've I've seen a fair amount of like social media buzz around, right? It's just fruit on ice. Mm -hmm. Did you think about like approaching some recipes in that way because they feel more accessible? Or what's the idea behind sort of writing some recipes in that way that are sort of very loose and freeform? Well, because I feel like if you, if I give you a recipe for like an herby salad, then you feel like beholden to making that recipe. But it's really more of an idea. It's not so much a recipe. And it's more just like if I, if I explain what I'm going for, then you're like, oh, that's a good idea. And next time, like I'm making a salad, I know that I don't have to be so uptight about it either. And not every recipe can work in that way, potentially. But like, do you think that's a thing that we should be doing more of as recipe yeah. writers or recipe developers? Absolutely. It's definitely a fine line. And yeah. what I think, I mean, I could write a whole book of those types of recipes. Yeah. And I don't know how useful it would be to most people. You know, it might be great. It would be a lot easier for me to write. Right. <laughs> right. But like, You know, any recipe in this book, I could write as just a story. Sure. And that sounds really appealing to me. But I think for most people, every time I try to do something like that, there's like, it's like, well, it's like, well, wait a minute. There's, there's like a, I don't know. It feels. People like freeze up a little bit sometimes. Yeah. And I think that there will, from me moving forward, will be more of those types of recipes because I think they're really fun to write and really fun to read and cook from. But I think that as a, as a person who, thinks of themselves to be in like the service journalism industry, it's not as helpful 
when it when it's written that way. Right. I made your coconut braised chicken with chickpeas and limes the other day, and I made um, an herby salad to go along with it. And I yes. felt that sort of like levity yeah. when I was making the salad that like I don't need to worry about that at all. No, you're like, like well, what goes in it? Am together. I missing chives? Oh shit! Yeah, right, it's like right. just and so I could focus on the dish that like needed a little bit more attention. Yeah, which was this dish, which leads us into some of the recipes that you've become known for. One mm. of which is the stew. Yeah. One of which is the cookie. I feel like you sort of have new versions of each in this book, right? You have the chocolate shortbread cookie that's sort of maybe a, a 2.0 of the cookie. Is that fair to say? No. No? It's so different, it's Brian. So, but it's a shortbread cookie. No, it's not. It's not? No. Oh, I thought it was a chocolate shortbread cookie. No, They're just I would tiny never do cookies. that. I would never oh, do okay. that. I would never do that to my firstborn. Okay. That's fair. like naming, that's like having <laughs> yeah. a baby and naming it like... Oh, what's a baby's name? I don't know. Emma. And then naming your second baby, Emily. Yeah. I would never do that to yeah. my kids. Yeah. No, this okay. is an entirely different cookie. So it's a different cookie. But what about the stew? <laughs> I feel like, okay, so then you also had the stew, which was a chickpea stew so that you did for the New York Times. So this chicken chickpea stew came before the stew. Okay. But they feel similar to me. Am I wrong to say that? No. Well, they both have coconut milk and chickpeas. Right. One's vegetarian and has greens and right. whatever. And one is like pasty and <laughs> like has chicken legs in it the chicken chickpea one is more about the chicken it's more of yeah. like a i would say it's that like it's like a, a chicken soy sort of yeah inspired yeah but with, stew, but with chickpeas i say in the head note i'm like this is like reaching from pulling from like eight different countries <laughs> right <laughs> there's like like a korean red pepper paste uh-huh. and also like a cow soy vibe but also like turmeric and also like it's right. i don't know there's a lot going and on and no noodles like the cow soy yeah, but, yeah yeah but it's delicious and i love so i've made both of the i've made the stew of course and i also just made this um coconut braised like chicken i feel i mean they I, are different yeah but there was there was something about this one that really spoke to me because of the peanuts. Yeah. I think they really like added a like an intense crunch that mm-hmm. I didn't really get with the stew. Yeah. And I just I was wondering if those were like new versions of these things, but they're not. You view them as totally different recipes. Well the the chicken and chickpea stew came before the stew right. stew. Right. Because when I was writing this table of contents, that was like a year I mean, and a half ago. Exactly. And the stew yeah. is a year old. Anyway. Right. So I don't think so. No, I think it's just, it's so hard when all of your recipes are like, well, this is similar to that. It's like, I think if you look at my entire collection of recipes, I could do like a Kardashian-esque, like Justin Bieber, (laughs) Selena Gomez, like who's connected to who type of chart because they're all pulling from my brain and flavors that I enjoy and love. Right. So does it bother you when people like me try to like draw comparisons between things that have gone viral for you? No, it doesn't. But it just doesn't feel fair. Think about the children, Brian. No, I'm just kidding. No, no, no. The cookies (laughs) is the only thing I would say doesn't feel fair because it isn't a shortbread. Right. It's like there's no, there's not even any flour in it. So I just, oh my God, Brian. I know. I'm behind. I'm behind. Come on. No, I'm just kidding. I actually almost pulled that recipe from the book. The the chocolate cookie? Yeah. I was like, people are going to talk about it and in reference only to the cookies. Sure. So if I don't even give you a cookie recipe to talk about, you'll have to talk about something else. Right. But at the last minute, I included it because I thought it was so good. Did you feel nervous that it wouldn't live up to the cookie? One? No, because it's not, it's not supposed to. Because it's not the same. No, I literally, it sounds like, I sound like a sad cat lady to be like, they're <laughs> no. my children, but like, <laughs> I mean, but like, yeah. think about like, if your first kid gets into Yale and then like, you're, they're like, well, is, is Brian going to get into Yale? Right. It's like, well, let Brian live his own life. Brian has, is on a different path. Maybe Brian wants to go to Oberlin. Yeah. Spoiler alert. I did not get into Yale. <laughs> I didn't try. Um, so you, how did you think about marketing this cookbook? Cause you did a few things that I really loved and I think are super unique to cookbook marketing, I guess mm-hmm. we'll call it, which a couple of them are you had like wheat paste flyers, yeah. right? All over New York City. <laughs> I know. Isn't that wild? Which I've never seen for a cookbook. I also just saw, I haven't gotten my hands on it, but is there like a zine? Yeah. That details, we'll I don't have one. one. I saw pictures of it from your event yesterday. Yeah. That details the making of this cookbook. Yeah. How did you think about, like both of those feel super unique to me. I've talked with many cookbook authors. Most people don't do those things. No. How did you think about that? Well, I have like a real chip on my shoulder. I'm like trying to do something that nobody's done before all the time. Okay. Yeah. I'm like, I must do something different because it feels very claustrophobic. As you know, Sure. there are many cookbooks in the world. There are. So I feel like trying to figure out a way to carve out a different path for yourself is really important for me personally, just as like a person who makes things. And I don't want to rely on what's been successful for other people because that doesn't work for everybody. Yeah. 
And so I wanted to rely what would, what I thought would be successful for me and the people that are buying my books. And so I kind of just look into that. But honestly, I don't really even think of it as marketing. I just think of like, it was my dream to have a wheat paste poster of this cover in Manhattan. I was like, you didn't I want care a whether giant it sold roast chicken. Or not. No, I didn't. Wanted that, I'm yeah. not, I'm pretty sure it didn't. <laughs> you never know. No. I, I mean, more, I was just like, that's a bucket list thing for me. Yeah. And I have one life to live and I'm living it. And yeah. if I want to plaster giant pictures of a roast chicken all over New York, God damn it, I'm going to do it. Yeah. So I found a way and I did it. I respect that. Yeah, thank you. And with the zine, it was more just like I wanted a way to kind of, because in the cookbook itself, there's not a lot of room for breaking that third wall. Like you have to sure. kind of treat it as a singular thing and and it's going to live on. And, it, you know, when I talk about like specific moments on set, you kind of lose traction of talking about the recipe. Right. And they become more specific and less general. And I think that each recipe should be able to stand on its own. And so it was also just like I wanted a way to sort of acknowledge that everybody that worked on the cookbook because they all worked really hard and we all work really closely together and I couldn't have done it without them. And they're as important to the process as I am. And to just give them like a little bit of a shout out in a way that felt meaningful and cool, I think was interesting because nobody works alone and nobody does right. this alone. Except when you're writing alone in, in the woods, <laughs> right, like right. I do. Um, but in the end, it's not a, but in the end, no, project. no, no, no. And so many, so much creativity went into this book from so many different people and, and hard work and attention and love. And, you know, that yeah. seemed like the least I could do. I mean, I'm not, not as like the least I could do. I just, <laughs> let's put it this way. A lot of, I've seen cookbook authors do like, here's five more recipes that you can get. It's like, they, you don't need another recipe from right, me. Right. Listen, I love my recipes as much as the next guy. <laughs> yeah. I don't need more recipes in yeah, this world. Yeah. I, but I do want the opportunity to kind of talk about the process as like a holistic sort of view because that's also really important. I take this very seriously. Yeah. I cook, making cookbooks is like my reason for living and I take it extremely, extremely personally and extremely seriously. And the process is so painstakingly thought out and intentional and careful and special to me that sure. I, I think that that process is worth talking about. Yeah. You talked with our friend Julia Tertian recently on mm -hmm. her podcast um, about not cooking from your books. You yeah. said you love your recipes as much as the next guy, but you well, don't actually in theory. In theory, but you <laughs> don't actually use them as resources. Is no. that because that? I mean, that's just how you cook, right? Naturally, I don't know if any cookbook author cooks from their books or anybody else's book. And if any do other you cookbook, use others? no, no, you just I don't think most do. Yeah, mm -hmm. I think if they tell you that they do, I don't know. But also, you know, it's interesting. It's like I don't know if anyone would ask, "What's your favorite restaurant in San Francisco?" You're asking me? Yeah. That's like asking... Probably Zuni. Okay, great. Well, that's like asking a chef of any restaurant, like, what's your favorite recipe to cook? Yeah. Nobody would ever ask them that. It's because true. they assume that they're a chef and that they just are creating and being creative all the time. So why not assume that from a person that's writing books and writing recipes as a, from a living? That's not a dig on you for asking the question. No, no, no. Everybody asks that question. Yeah. But I, I literally had just, the, just had this thought in yeah. this moment. We had a breakthrough. <laughs> no, I but love seriously, when we have it's like, if people are surprised, like, oh, you don't cook from other books. It's right. like, no, because I'm, I'm a cook. Right. Right. <laughs> I don't know. I don't think that's true for everyone. I think that's true for me and, and Julia. <laughs> well, I think, yes. I think Ina Garten has said she cooks from her books. I which hope I she does. Bless might, her. Might not be true, but, but you know maybe what? she does. However, she's making it happen. Yeah. I want to, I want to know. We respect that. Everything in that both style. these books is something that I've made organically yeah. in my life. For some reason or another. Sure. They're not just like dreamt up to put in a TOC to like, <laughs> right. you know, figure out for you. They are a version of something. I keep notes whenever I have people over or cook for myself or make lunch. I take pictures of everything yeah. just to kind of reference. And when I start dreaming up a table of contents for a book, I look at my photo stream of just like, oh, I made this lunch for myself one day when it was raining out. It was actually really good. How can I refine it to be a recipe worth publishing? Right. Last time you were here, we talked about some of the cookbooks that you love. Um, I don't want to talk about specifics this time. I'm just curious what you think makes a great cookbook. What makes a great cookbook is, I think, personality. I think mm -hmm. it has to have personality. I think it has to have service. I think it has to have honesty. And I think it has to have a point of view. Yeah. I think that like anyone can write a cookbook. And I said that in another podcast and I felt like I was kind of thinking about it afterwards and I was like, does that make me sound like an asshole? But I, I mean it in a way that like, it's true. Like if you look on like the top rated cookbooks on Amazon, yeah, they're don't. all, <laughs> please don't. They're all like a lot of them are dietitians uh -huh. or celebrities and mm -hmm. they didn't start off as being cooks, but they found a way to kind of, they wanted to write a cookbook. So sure. they did. And it, it it's like, what am I trying to say here? Isn't that the the quote from Ratatouille, the Pixar movie, right? Like anybody can, maybe I'm 
misattributing this, but anybody can cook, but not everybody should. Yeah, I that's mean, what yeah. the critic says, right? In his like scathing. Oh, review. but he's the bad guy. Don't he's make the me. Bad I'm the bad guy. I don't want to make you the bad. <laughs> no, oh, I don't want to make you him. Not at all. But like no, anybody can write a cookbook. True. But there's a. But isn't that the lesson in ratatouille? I think it might be. You don't just follow a recipe with no heart and just hope for the best. You have to like really want it, and you have to really have something to say, and you have to like have right. a perspective. You have to be able to communicate with people. You have to be able to anticipate their needs. You have to be able to be honest with them and yourself and. Also, more importantly, you have to do the work. You have right. to cook the recipe. You right. have to know it. You have to experience it. You have to be like, your tomato paste is going to look really dark after 30 seconds. So don't panic. Sure. Um, here's how to, here's what that means and what you're going to do next. Like if you're not actually cooking the recipe and you're just going through the motions, you don't know how to say those things and you don't know how to encourage people, you know, through the process of the recipe. And right. we live in a crazy time and any, and anyone can do anything. Anyone can be a photographer. Anyone can be a recipe writer. Anyone can be a, podcast host podcast host so so and people keep saying like oh you should have a podcast and i'm like i don't need a podcast i let listen again i love talking i love talking yeah as much as person. <laughs> but like i'm not sure people need me to talk into a microphone for like 40 hours a day because i don't have anything to say yeah i have something to say on your podcast yeah i don't know i feel like the allison roman show might do really well yeah but, we'll see yeah but i'm like do we need another podcast in this world right there's right. a there's like a meme of a, of a <laughs> podcast. It's like podcast in 2019, and it's like 40 people in the ocean, like trying to catch a wave, and they're all like fighting with It's very funny. Yes. Anyway, cool cool meme joke. Yeah. So we we end with a little game. So Yay. last time you were here, we played we played a lipstick game. We're gonna skip the lipstick this time cool. and just go right to having people over. Yes. So since we're here to talk about nothing fancy. Um, we'll do a couple rounds. We have these cards here. They're pretty self-explanatory. The mm-hmm. blue are more obscure or non-traditional ingredients. Sometimes so, not always. So let's pretend you're having someone over. You're okay. not entertaining. And it's, of course, nothing fancy, yeah. but someone special is coming over. I'll tell mm, you who. Someone special. Someone special. Mm. You're putting together a meal. And because I feel like now with your second cookbook, you're often being compared to these like idols of entertaining as maybe our new ex. We're yeah. going to play like we're having <laughs> some of those people over for okay. dinner. So round one, um, <laughs> let's pretend that Martha Stewart is coming over. Oh my God. You're okay. not entertaining. Of no, course. it's she's nothing. Just coming fancy. Over. She's just coming over as she does. What are you making? So you can draw one of each and oh, that's what each. you okay. have to work with and okay. tell us what you would whip up. Oh my God. Okay. I've got kumquats, a steak, Oh. It looks like a ribeye, so that's nice. Okay. Chives. Mm-hmm. Ooh, bell peppers. Oh, no. I hate, hate bell them. peppers. And you say that a lot in this book. I do. I caught, what are like, the odds? four of references all these like, cards. No bell that's peppers. the one I draw. Yeah. Gross. Um, I'd probably make a, like, a little, like, muddled kumquat beverage. Like, I'd probably just okay. muddle some kumquat in a glass. With maybe a touch of sugar and then pour gin or vodka over it and top it with soda water. Like nothing too sweet. Just kind of like nice citrusy, acidic, casual. And is this a big batch? Like Martha Stewart has to pour her own? No, no, no. I would make her one. You would. Okay. Or I would muddle a bunch of kumquats in like a mason jar or something and like make the cocktail in that and then pour her one. Okay. Yeah. And if she was like, I don't want to, I want like something harder, I would just slice them up and garnish a Negroni with it or something. Okay. And then steak and chives, I'm just going to make like a beautiful ribeye rare with like buttered chives spooned Mm -hmm. over it and like on thick toast and maybe some shaved radishes or delicious something like that yes and then bell peppers i'm gonna burn and throw in the garbage (laughs) yeah i'm i'm so (laughs) shocked i i swear this game is not rigged like i I saw you shuffle them yeah and and i did not put bell peppers there (laughs) intentionally wow um i think martha stewart would love it she might even instagram about it she has a crazy instagram oh i it's my favorite instagram it is by far my it is no offense to any other great instagram like you i bow to her Incredible. Yeah. All right. Another round. Mm. Let's say Ina Garten is coming over. Mm. Okay. The Barefoot Contessa is coming to Allison Roman's for we, dinner. It's we nothing have, fancy. Yeah. We have fish sauce. Okay. Duck. Mm. That's fancy. Yes. But cinnamon mm-hmm. and an onion. Let's see here. I'll probably make some sort of like rubby marinade, like spice rub for the duck. Okay. And just slow roast it. So the fat under the skin renders. Is this a whole duck? It, I mean, it looks like it. Okay. Just wondering what you're using. Can I use breasts? Yeah, sure. Great. Duck breast then. Duck breast. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) So I will probably just salt and pepper the duck breast. Okay. And then I'll sear it to like, like low and slow to render the skin or render the fat under the skin. Sure. And then I will put a knob of butter in the skillet with some cinnamon sticks. 
as pictured yep. and baste it with like cinnamon butter to just oh. kind of give like a lightly spiced and then add some like crushed black pepper and crushed red pepper okay. to keep it savory. Maybe yes. some crushed garlic. Sure. So you get like a vaguely spiced duck vibe. Right. And then I'll probably make some sort of like celery salad with this raw mm. onion. It's yeah. a red onion. So okay. Red onion. For those at home. <laughs> thinly sliced celery, thinly sliced red onion, little fish sauce, salt, pepper. Delicious. Maybe some cilantro. You're a big proponent of celery salads. Ah, oh, I love There's, celery. I think so a couple much. in the book. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Last round. Let's okay. say Julia Child is mm. coming over for dinner. My favorite. Yes. Of the three. Tbh. Ooh, white truffle butter. I feel like she would not like Ooh. that. Lamb. That's nice. Okay. Nutmeg. What? Asparagus. All right. Mm. Okay. Honestly, white truffle butter. Let's assume that it's really high quality white truffle butter. Sure. Okay. Yes. So I think for that. I'd probably just make like a little snack at the beginning where I would take really good toast and smear it with some white truffle butter mm-hmm. and like flaky salt. Yeah. And just give it to her. Right. And maybe like a bit of a jammy egg or something, but maybe not oh, even. Maybe yeah. just buttered toast. Just butter and salt. Yeah. Yeah. And be uh-huh. like, oh, this is really nice white truffle butter. Right. And she would appreciate that. Yes. Um, there's lamb and asparagus, depending on the cut of lamb. If it's just her and I, we're making chops. Yeah. So I'll sear the chops and then I'm a big fan of cooking a vegetable in that lamb fat. Okay. So I'll probably sure. just toss in the asparagus after that. Maybe if there's some peas hanging out and then like chive blossoms. Yeah. Um, I'll borrow Martha Stewart's chives from earlier. <laughs> uh huh. <laughs> and, um, these are all back of, to back. Right? Yeah. Exactly. Oh yeah. It's a busy week. I'm <laughs> yeah. very busy. Um, just kind of like a nice springy asparagus salad, maybe some sure. raw, some cooked in the lamb fat. Okay. Um, and then the nutmeg, honestly, so stumped. It really? doesn't go with lamb or, nut- or yeah. asparagus. Yeah. I feel like that maybe. Is it like the window to a dessert? Maybe. Maybe maybe for dessert, I make her cinnamon toast with a bit of nutmeg. So I start with white truffle mm-hmm. butter toast and end right. with cinnamon butter toast. Right, right. I think she would find that cheeky and fun. I think she would. Right? And if she didn't, we we know you wouldn't apologize. No, I wouldn't. She wouldn't you want me to. She wouldn't want you to. No. Yeah. Never apologize. That's right. Well, this was so much fun. Thank you so much for coming back, Allison. Thanks for having me. And let's check in now with Sierra Tishgart of Great Jones, sharing a vintage work from their cookbook library. Hi, Sierra. How are you? Hi, good, good. Thank you so much for joining us once again to talk about another cookbook from the Great Jones Library. And today you pulled down, I believe, um, What Mrs. Fisher Knows About Southern Cooking, which is um, by all means a classic cookbook. Tell us a little bit more about it. This was written in 1881. Um, So really historic. And it's believed to be the first cookbook ever written by an African-American. So, you know, the the book's tagline is the first African-American cookbook. And really has a rich history there. It was it was written by Abby Fisher, who was uh, unable to read or write. So the contents of the book she actually dictated to um, a group of San Francisco and Oakland residents who who helped document all of her amazing recipes. What sorts of food are we seeing in this this book? One, there's a big pickling and preserve section. That okay. was one of her specialties. There's also um, cream apple pie, lemon pie, coconut pie, cracker pie, mince pie, a lot of pies and sure. cakes, um, some of which are very familiar to us. But, you know, so and so interesting that in 1881, we're still, we're still popular, um, some of which have obviously, you know, become less popular throughout history. But it is interesting to see some of her nifty tricks. Like one of them is putting a coconut in the oven to separate the meat from the shell, um, which is a trick mm. that like should should persist today. Yeah, um, interesting. There's ice cream. Um, it's it's really, I mean, I think one of the reasons why this is such an iconic and important cookbook is, is that it's pretty amazing how many different kinds of dishes that this touches and how much I'm sure this helps define the popularity of so many of these dishes. And for such an important cookbook, I think I've I've read too that um, for a long time, in fact, there were very, very few copies and it was quite rare and that many folks didn't even, many historians didn't even really know it existed until I think maybe the late 80s um, when a, a copy sort of came around. So it's sort of interesting to see its um, importance and the fact that it almost disappeared perhaps entirely from our repertoire. I didn't know that. That's that's so interesting. Yeah, it was almost impossible to even find a copy. And it was sort of a, a thing of lore until it came up, I think, at a Sotheby's auction. Huh. Well, I'm, I'm glad that it's now that's now been really, really rediscovered and popularized. I mean, it's it's really thorough. There's there's roast meats, there's pies. I mean, you could you could cook from this cookbook every single day and make something completely novel. I also think it's really nice. Um, the way the recipes are written is precise, but you know, not as 
technical as, as recipes today. It's um, the measurements are more how you would explain it to a friend. And it's very direct and straightforward that way, which really makes cooking for men, I think, particularly joyful and, and straightforward. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's such an important and historical work for so many reasons, and I'm so glad you shared it with us. Yeah, thank you. And that's our show for today. Thank you so much for listening. As always, you can find bonus content and recipes from all of our episodes on saltandspine.com. There you'll find two recipes from Nothing Fancy, the coconut braised chicken with chickpea and limes, and the creamy cauliflower and onion gratin with sesame breadcrumbs. Remember, if you like hearing from your favorite authors on Salt and Spine, and I hope you do, please click subscribe wherever you're listening. And of course, you can leave us a rating or join the Salt and Spine community and support our show at patreon.com backslash salt and spine. Salt and Spine is proud to have storytelling partners like Edible San Francisco. In the latest issue, hear from three women, Lenore Estrada of Three Babes Bake Shop, Janelle St. Jean of Pietisserie, and Elizabeth Simon of Revenge Pies on how they're speaking out on behalf of minority and women-owned businesses, building up their operations, and paying it forward to their community. Subscribe now to ensure you don't miss compelling stories on how San Francisco eats at edibleSanFrancisco.com. Our show today was produced by me, Brian Hogan-Stewart, and our kitchen correspondent is Sarah Varney. The Salt and Spine original theme song was created by Brunch for Lunch. Salt and Spine is recorded at the Civic Kitchen in San Francisco's Mission District. The Civic Kitchen offers hands-on classes and events for home cooks. You can find out more at CivicKitchenSF.com. Thanks, as always, to Jen Nurse, Chris Bonmo, and the Civic Kitchen team to Priya Krishna, to Sierra Tishgart at Great Jones, to Edible San Francisco, and to Celia Sack at Omnivore Books. We'll be back next week with more stories behind the cookbooks you love. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hey, I'm Kim Holderness. And I'm Ben Holderness. We host the Holderness Family Podcast every Tuesday. You may know us from the silly videos that we make online. Or a book about marriage called Everybody Fights. Or as winners of season 33 of The Amazing Race. Still can't believe that happened. Listen, we do a lot of stuff, but our podcast is our most favorite thing. Yeah, because every week we get to sit down face-to-face, talk to each other about marriage, family, mental health, or just anything that we want to know more about. Sometimes we have expert interviews, sometimes it's just us, but our goal is to bring some joy and laughter into your life every week. Our other goal is that maybe you will learn something as well. Right. So search the Holderness Family Podcast and check out our most recent episodes. We have one about staying organized with creators of the Home Edit. And one about being diagnosed with ADHD as an adult. We hope you'll join us. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.